This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. Hanukkah may have been removed from your Bible, but it cannot be removed from your heart. That's why we're doing the Hanukkah special tonight featuring Hanukkah recipes from Chef Rich Hall. We have David Robinson in the house and a very special Hanukkah history lesson from Reuven Prager, who will join us from Israel via Skype. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans, and happy Hanukkah. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood, which Hanukkah, if you didn't know, started Tuesday at sunset, and it goes till Wednesday, December 8, eight nights, and we have an extended Shabbat Night Live tonight featuring Hanukkah recipes and some Hanukkah history you've probably never heard from Ruven Prager, some great stuff from David Robson as well. But before we get to all of that, let's see where we are on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. There you see it on your screen. We are on the fourth and final Shabbat, uh, the ninth month, which is smack dab in the middle of Hanukkah. So now please welcome my chief operating officer of Arud Awakening International, Ted Clayton. Well, thank you, Scott, for letting me be on here today. And ladies and gentlemen, we are so happy to have you here with us for Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom. And you know, we have a new month here, Ted, and uh, we wanted to talk about our new love gift because uh, it coincides with what's starting next week on Shabbat Night Live, which is a whole series with Keith Johnson. You know, Scott, when I first came to A Root Awakening International, one of the first people I met uh, here besides Michael and the entire Rood crew was Keith. Keith Johnson is just a wonderful man of God, ladies and gentlemen, and he has a very special teaching for this month's love gift. Scott, tell us about it. Well, we sat down with Keith and we did a whole series on comparing uh, Bibles, and that's coming uh, next week on Shabbat Night Live right after the, the the, the special we have this week. Yes. But as part of that, we did a love gift as well. Okay. And uh, Keith's favorite Bible in his house is his grandmother's Bible. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's from 1902 or something like this. Uh -huh. And just because there's some really neat anomalies in it. And so we did a uh, special guest love gift teaching on Grandma's Bible. This is what it's all about. And it's, uh, it says on the back here, certain things in our world have the same meaning in every culture and every language, uh, like a smile from one person to another and the eternal name of God. So using examples from Keith's ministry mm. uh, and his travel around the world and that kind of thing, uh, we are comparing Bibles, uh, especially from his grandmother's Bible. So this is a wow. really interesting love gift that you really want to get. So this is your uh, gift uh, from us to you for a gift to the ministry of $50 or more. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, I would want to say a special thank you to Keith Johnson uh, for doing this love gift for us. Ladies and gentlemen, you are going to be truly blessed when you watch this video from Keith. Now, what else do we have? Okay, so for that is a gift for uh, $50 or more. Yep. And you know what the, these love gifts are all about. You're not buying these things. Michael no. says, you know what? If people want to support this ministry, I want to give something back. Yes. So let, so this is what it's all about. So Keith is actually giving to Michael to give to you. Is how That's this right. is working. That's right. For a gift of $50 or more. If you want to give more than that to $100 or more, uh, we have two very special guests, uh, gifts here. Uh, we have this Megiddo keychain. Now, what is a Megiddo key? For, or, 
Well, well yeah. Yeah. a Megiddo yeah. key is nothing, but it's a Megiddo right. coin <laughs> yeah. is what this is. Within this keychain, this is a replica of a coin that was from uh, 800 BC, or the 8th century BC, rather. Yes, yes. Uh, it, and it has uh, the Lion of Judah on the front, which is really an amazing thing. And so uh, this is your gift, uh, along with uh, Keith's teaching for a gift of $100 or more. Now, that and we was also... taken from a piece of archaeology that they discovered. Yes, uh, yes, right? yes. It's a replica. Yes, a piece of archaeology. It's an ancient Hebrew seal from the 8th century BC, which is, uh, says right down here on the back, Okay. Uh, found at Megiddo. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that is uh, part of the love gift for $100 or more. And also we have this replica of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So... I don't know if you know what, what happened. So in the 1940s, this yes. kid throws a rock into a into cave. A cave. That's right. uh, so goes, I mean, I think it's truth. Some people say it's legend. Some people say it's truth. So anyway, they hear this smash up yes. in, the, in, the, in the cave. So these yes. kids go climbing up the cave. What is this all about? So they go up there, and lo and behold, they find ancient scrolls of the Bible up there, yes. uh, which are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is a replica of one of the, uh, well, a miniature replica, obviously, of one of the uh, pottery uh uh, what I'm trying to say, one of the um, containers, I guess, yes. yeah. of the yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls. And inside we have a replica of what they found. So this is just, I believe this is the scroll of Isaiah. And so wow. this is a neat thing to keep on your mantle just so people say, what is that? And you can share your faith, Once of again, course. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, you're sharing your faith with everyone by having these uh, proudly displayed in your home. And ladies and gentlemen, now here's the big one. Yes. For your gift of $300 or more, there is a matching necklace that goes with the keychain uh, of the Megiddo coin. Yeah. So it's a beautiful thing, uh, and it's, it's sterling silver. Uh, wonderful piece of uh, piece of uh, jewelry here, and that is goes along with everything else for your gift of three hundred dollars or more. And it's only during December. So if you love archaeology, which is of course Michael Rood loves archaeology, so oh, do yeah. we. That's why we're all here. That's right. And so uh, if you love archaeology like he does, this is a wonderful gift to have in your home and around your neck. Absolutely. And speaking of Michael, mm -hmm. uh, I just saw Michael yesterday, and I wanted to kind of give a quick update. Oh, please do. On yes. How Michael is doing. So ladies. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael is doing fantastic. He uh, he and uh, a friend dropped off uh, some papers to my house the other day, and he was sitting out in the car. I went out and said hi to him, and uh, he had just come back from one of his many therapy sessions he does a week. I mean, he does like five therapy sessions a week just to get back into shape to be back here with us. And uh, he looked at me, kind of looked over like this and said, boy, they worked me hard today. You know, so <laughs> he is doing great. His speech is getting so much better every week that we see him. And so, ladies and gentlemen, please keep Michael in your prayers. Uh, they mean so very much to him uh, as he's recovering from this stroke. It seems like we keep kind of saying the same thing each time that he's getting better. Well, good news, he is getting better. And every week, it's just getting a little stronger and a little stronger. And we really look forward to having him back here very, very soon. But he's doing great. He wanted me to uh, let everyone know how thankful he is of your support. He really does appreciate it, as all of us here at the Rude Crew do, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate your giving, especially this time of year, because it's this time of year, ladies and gentlemen, that we plan for 2022. So if you would, please pray. And then if, if the Almighty leads you, please donate to A Rude Awakening this year, ladies and gentlemen. Your money could never go 
to a better place uh, to, to service the kingdom than right here at A Root Awakening. And we thank you for that. Indeed, and uh, that's, uh, you know, Michael is still involved, of course. And people say, oh, is he course. involved? Oh, my I mean, you see him practically every week to plan yeah. things. So oh, absolutely. he's still very oh, much involved. very much so. Very Even if you don't so. see him up here, uh, right. he's, he's, he watches Shabbat Night Live. Every he knows week. what goes on. He every sees week. every guest. And if you ever wonder, does Michael know what, what you guys are doing? Yes, he does. Oh, yes. He watches every week. Every bit. Yeah. Every bit. Every, indeed. So, uh, Ted, thank you for being in contact Thanks, with Michael Scott. and giving us uh, an update with uh, him. And uh, we certainly appreciate that. All right, so Hanukkah may have been removed from revival, but it cannot be removed from your heart, of course. So that's why we have Hanukkah recipes tonight with Chef Rich Hall. We have Hanukkah information from uh, David Robinson and also the Hanukkah history lesson from Reuben Prager. That's all coming up next on this special extended version of Shabbat Night Live. We'll see you back here in two minutes. Certain things in our world have the same meaning in every culture and every language like a smile from one person to another, and the eternal name of God. Using examples from his ministry travel around the world and some intriguing discoveries in his grandmother's Bible, Keith Johnson demonstrates how the name of God is universal regardless of place or time. My grandmother never shared with me that she read the Bible. Uh, I never heard about the Bible my whole life, but this is her Bible. It's her family Bible. It's the 1901 version, and we've already found some real cool nuggets <laughs> regarding the name that are in there. To be honest, that I didn't know until yeah. I cracked open her Bible. In this month's Love Gift teaching, Grandma's Bible, Keith Johnson offers a compelling and entertaining perspective that confirms that the name of God is indeed forever and for everyone. Right now, for a limited time, you can get your copy of Grandma's Bible by donation. Donate a $50 love gift and we'll send you Grandma's Bible on DVD or Blu-ray. Or for a donation of $100, we'll send you Grandma's Bible, plus a replica Megiddo coin keychain and a collectible Dead Sea Scrolls pottery model containing an excerpt from the Scroll of Isaiah. Or as a special offer for a donation of $300, we'll send you Grandma's Bible, the Megiddo coin keychain, and Dead Sea Scrolls pottery, plus a breathtaking necklace matching the Megiddo coin keychain featuring an ancient Hebrew seal dating back to the 8th century BC. These are special gifts from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Don't wait. Grandma's Bible is available only until December 31st and supplies are limited. Call now to receive your gifts, 888-766-3610, or get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com. The Chronological Gospels Bible is changing lives all over the world, putting everything the Messiah did in exact chronological order and explaining the behind-the-scenes truth of what the Messiah did, when He did it, and why the timing of it all means everything. And now, the Chronological Gospels can be easier on your eyes. The larger print edition features 40% larger type, and every page appears exactly the same as the original, so you can follow along with others who have the regular size version. The Chronological Gospels larger print edition also has wider margins to write notes, and the premium quality paper means you can highlight without soaking through. Plus, the larger print edition lies flat, so you can teach without having to hold the book open. 
The Chronological Gospel's larger print edition is a big and beautiful coffee table book, measuring a full 12 inches tall and 9 inches wide. Study the Bible with clarity and ease. I love the size of this book. This is nine by 12. The paper is, is perfect because it doesn't bleed through when I write on it. I can mark it up and I always make notes in all my Bibles. Everything is the same place as it is on the smaller version and I can just stand back and I can teach from it and it's just, it's the perfect size. I pray thee, of whom speaks this prophet? Order the Chronological Gospels larger print edition by phone or online. You'll get 40% larger type than the original. Call 800-788-7887. That's 800-788-7887. Or get the Chronological Gospels Bible larger print edition online at arudawakening.tv slash large. Welcome back to Hanukkah 2021. You are in for a treat. Chef Rich Hall. Now, you gotta know a little something about Chef Rich. He used to come here to A Rude Awakening and we had lunch with him every day. You see, around the ministry here, there's not a lot of restaurants to go to or this kind of thing. And all we had was 30 minutes for lunch. So, so what we used to do is have Chef Rich make lunch for everybody and that made things more efficient around the office. Well then, uh, pandemic came and all the rest of it, Chef Rich found something else, but he still does wonderful meals like he used to have here at the ministry and you are in for a treat. These recipes are simple enough to do at home, but they taste great. I mean, believe us, believe the crew that was here. I mean, when we taped these things, uh, he was doing uh, a wonderful uh, job on the latkes, the, um, oh gosh, what else do we have? We had the beef, brisket, we had all kinds of things. You're gonna love this. So several recipes, you're gonna get the recipes on the screen, so make sure you freeze frame it or take a picture or something, and you'll have all the recipes. And these are very simple to do at home and not a lot of preparation either. So enjoy Hanukkah recipes with Chef Rich Hall. Take a look. Well, happy Hanukkah. Welcome to the Hanukkah kitchen, courtesy of Chef Rich Hall, who has decided to bless us today. It's nice praise. to see you again. We, well, the last time we were here was for Passover. Yeah, 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 you made a beautiful meal. We got another one here. It's wonderful stuff, and the kitchen behind us is amazing. Uh, and that kitchen is due to someone at Rude Awakening who also has many talents, and that is Angie Clark. Angie is an interior designer, in addition to uh, being our ambassador club liaison and all the rest that she does. And in fact, if you want her to do some kind of uh, staging for your house or something like that, there's her email at the bottom of the screen. Go ahead and ask her, why not? And Chef Rich Hall, you also have things going on as well. You uh, work full-time doing this kind of thing in Charlotte. Uh, yeah, I'm, I work with Shree Hotels and Right now, we're just trying to catch up post-COVID. Um, it was uh, a year with no business, and now everybody's there once. All right, so, well, wonderful. And, and uh, you can get in touch with me uh, there or through the emails and stuff at the bottom of the screen. And uh, look forward to hearing from you. Absolutely, yeah. So we And you're going to want to get hold of Chef after this, trust me. Okay, so we're going to make a Hanukkah feast here. The chef tells me you can feed 12 to 15 people, depending on the size of the brisket, which is one of the things we're going to be doing. So we're going to be doing a sunflower broccoli salad, Asiago 
Asiago, right? Asiago Parmesan. Asiago Parmesan crusted salmon. Sriracha honey roast chicken with apricot. Mmm. Rosemary smoked beef beef brisket. Beef brisket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> eat beef brisket. And Yukon gold potato latkes. Ah, yes. So they sound kind of familiar, but they uh, have kind of a Carolina twist on them. So okay. If you would go and research your Hanukkah menus, you're going to see a lot of the same suspects, but we, we have a little twist with them here. So. Okay, very good. Now, there are a couple of things. Obviously, some of the things here were sort of half uh, half cooked already, so that we don't you know do it all here on camera. But uh, chef, there's a couple of things that we need to do the day before you'd want to hold such a feast, right? So what do we need to do for planning beforehand? Well, for the brisket, if you're going to smoke the brisket yourself, you want to allow yourself about 12 hours. Okay. If you do it slow, um, you get a nice bark without it overcooking, and it's a lot easier. This particular recipe, after we smoke it, we put the herbs on it garlic and the butter, we wrap it in full and we cook it on top of the vegetables in the oven really, really slow. Okay. Um, so if you do pick up a brisket already smoked, you can pull this off in an hour, an hour and a half, no okay. problem. Now the chicken as well needs some attention, right? Yeah, the chicken, um, uh, you've all had apricot chicken for uh, Hanukkah. Ours is a uh, honey sriracha chicken mm -hmm. with apricot glaze. Um, it's just one of my favorite ways to serve roast chicken um, with the uh, apricot glaze on at the end. The longer you put that marinade on, the better it's going to be. All right. You want to give yourself at least an hour with it on to penetrate, but if you do it overnight, it's even better. All right. Now, uh, Chef, thank you again. Uh, Chef has provided all of the recipes that he's using here today, and so you can uh, get them with uh, on a PDF, uh, which is there's the link at your bottom of the screen there, and you can uh, get them all there. And that's what we're going to be following today. So, Chef, the first thing we do is what? What do we want to do? We're going to start with the same. Okay. We're going uh, to put it together a little bit uh, different this time. Last time, we just cooked everything through in stages. Um, today we're going to do it like we were cooking Hanukkah dinner for you and trying to get it all on the table at one time. Okay. Um, so as you read through these um, uh, recipes, uh, the instructions are below the ingredients. If you have any questions, my number will be there and Scott as well. Wonderful. Um, health questions there, taste questions here. So. Um, yeah, no. No, no, uh, no judgment on what we're cooking today on what the ingredients are, okay? This is a special occasion. All right, so first thing we're going to do is the, crust, uh, the crusted chicken. Oh, no, uh, the salmon first. Oh, the salmon. I'm, I'm looking at the Parmesan salmon saying chicken. Parmesan crusted salmon. All right. So uh, we have four or five ounce fresh salmon fillets. Now, is it important to have fresh always or fresh from or frozen first? Does it matter? This is one of the few recipes with salmon you get away with the frozen salmon. Okay. Because the cheese kind of takes up for that. But as anybody knows, there's no comparison. I mean, once you've had fresh salmon, if you don't have it, you're going to be a little disappointed every time. Okay, so, so fresh, never frozen. Got it. But uh, we start off by uh, searing it in the pan, salt, mm -hmm. pepper, garlic, and whatever your favorite herbs are. I put parsley and dill in the recipe. They're the standards. Okay. Sear them off till you're just about medium rare. Okay. And then your topping is basically Duke's mayonnaise and all your favorite kinds of cheese. Just enough mayonnaise to bind it. Okay. You put too much mayonnaise in this, it's gonna taste like mayonnaise, and you're gonna be, you, you. I got you. So, just so I mean, sticks together. Just enough to hold it together. So you got your Asiago and your Parmesan? We have Asiago, Parmesan, and then I also have um, some Pecorino as well. Oh, okay. Um, you can even do a, a cheddar or um, uh, some other kind of European cheese if you like that. Okay. I, I would stay away from soft cheeses, though, because okay. they'll run and make a mess on you. Okay, very good. So and that's about eight ounces of the Asiago and four ounces of the uh, grated about, parmesan. About two to one. Oh, two to one. All right. All right. All right. So super, super simple. After we've uh, seared it off to about medium rare, oh, 
Put this mixture on top. Now you want salmon to stay medium rare in the middle because if it gets yeah, done, um, it's dry, right? I, mean, I, I found the last couple of years, pretty much all my fish orders, people are asking for it well done. I'm yeah. not sure if this is a health scare or it's just um, um, unsophisticated palates or whatever, <laughs> but it has been more of a common thing. But yeah, if uh, you want the perfect result, you go to medium rare, and we're going to pop this in the broiler, and that's going to take about four minutes just for it to brown. Um, if I was serving that to you in a restaurant, I would uh, would probably put walnuts as a garnish. Um, okay. So many allergies, and it doesn't need it anyway. So we're going to put this in. Put the whole pan right in. 400 degrees. Uh, yeah, we're at uh, high convection at 400. If you don't have a convection oven at home, uh, you yourself about 450, 475. Keep an eye on it, and you want the heat source from the top. From the top. So. Now, if you don't have convection, about double the time? Uh, minutes? I, that's what I was saying. If you don't have the convection, you really, really need to keep you an eye on it. Watch it. Okay, all right. Um, if you have the convection, it, it shouldn't take more than three or four minutes. Okay. So now, I think the next thing we wanted to do was a salad, right? And I'm going to help you with that. Yeah, um, I right. think you're going to do the broccoli salad. This is a Carolina staple. Okay. And I first heard about it, and um, I thought, that's gonna be good together, you know. <laughs> um, also, the Carolina version was chock full of bacon, um, ah. so um, uh, we replaced the bacon with sunflower seeds, and it's better. Smart. It okay, really well, let's better. take a look. Let's bring it over here. So we've got the broccoli, mm -hmm. and then we've got uh, sweet red onion and the cheddar. I'll bring over as well, and then we've got a cup of Duke's mayo. Uh, with, of course, mixed in here is the uh, the vinegar and the white sugar, right? Yeah, this is old-fashioned um, uh, coleslaw mix, and it's a, a half a cup of uh, white vinegar, a uh, half a cup of sugar, and then Duke's mayonnaise. If you make this other mayonnaise and it doesn't work out, I don't know what to tell you. So. <laughs> um, right, but so basically, it's just a dump and go. So we just dump um, this on yep. so that everything sticks, right? Okay. The whole thing, right? And we have about uh, two crowns of young broccoli here, all separated out. When I say young broccoli, I, I mean the crisper broccoli. If it's been sitting in your grocery store for a long time, you can tell. It's, uh, it's tougher and it take, it will work. It just take a lot longer to penetrate. Okay. And uh, so we'll put that. In nobody there. wants to wait around to eat broccoli. No, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> broccoli is, has amazing uh, health benefits. One of them is something that most people don't think of. Something called sulforaphane. You know, these, this is obviously a sulfur vegetable. Is that what this, uh, the smell? The smell is, yeah, this and, and uh, cauliflower and things of that nature. Um, and sulforaphane is actually an internal sunscreen. Oh, wow. It will, yeah, so if you eat broccoli uh, in the summertime, of course, that's not summertime right now, but it's, let's say if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, it's obviously uh, summertime now. You eat broccoli in the summertime, it will actually uh, give you an SPF value on your skin. Wow. How about that? Is that all uh, cabbage uh, family vegetables? Yes, and especially broccoli, and even more than that, broccoli sprouts are the best. Okay. Okay, so after we have the, the sauce on here, then what do we put on? Uh, I'd go onions next. Onions, okay, and we just want to have these separate out. These are just... Finally chopped. Yeah, you're, you're the Julianne. Julianne, all right. And that was one small onion. Okay, one small onion, and we just sort of break it up a little yeah. bit. Okay. These two here you can work a little bit with um, without worrying about it, but you don't want to tear the uh, cheese up to where it's a mush. Uh, and uh, gotcha. the sunflower is about half in the mix, and then use some more on top to garnish okay. with. Okay, so sunflowers and then the cheese. So let's do this sunflowers. All right, and of course we'll put the cheese first. The cheese yeah. first, yeah. Okay, we'll do that. Put that all in. 
Then about half of those. Okay. Mix it all in. And then once we put it in the container, then we put the other half on. Is that what you're saying? Okay. A little gentler with the, the uh, after you put the cheese in, so. Okay. So, and that's mostly just because it, it looks mangled otherwise. I got you. So we'll just sort of basically turn it real gentle-like. Yeah. Give this one a try, y'all. You will be pleasantly surprised. It's like the, it does the best good. part of broccoli, the best part of coleslaw. Okay. Check this fish right quick. Okay. Chef checks on the chick or the uh, fish there. We are going to put this. So we can plate this right away or put uh, it in yeah, the bowl? You can go right in the bowl. Okay. Uh, like any kind of uh, slaw or marinated uh, salad, if you make it an hour or so ahead, you're going to have a better flavor after it sits for a while. Gotcha. Okay, so we'll just do this. Try and get you in the camera there. So you all can see it. I feel good if I can get it in that bowl without smelling it, much less aimed <laughs> at the camera. There we are. Get a little bit in there. Okay, it looks good. And we'll top some off, right? Yep. Now obviously we'll have a bigger bowl than that, but this is just so you'll, you can see it. Top it off there. Sorry for a garnish. That's it. Beautiful. Okay, so we'll put that with our other items here that are ready for a finish. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm gonna make a little switch and do the chicken before the salmon, because I want that salmon to brown a little bit longer. So if you'll hand us that platter with the uh, squash on it. All right. Beautiful. I'm gonna um, plate up the uh, honey sriracha salmon, and then we're gonna hit it with the apricot glaze. All right. Looks beautiful. Now, people don't have a double oven like you have here. Can they just put it all I don't, in? I don't have a double oven like we have here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all basically at the same temperature, is it not? Yeah. All the same? Um, if, uh, if I was trying to put this dinner out when I just had the one oven, most of this I would do more on the stove top to finish. It's just nice. The bottom oven is warmer. I so I can do everything in there, go goof off, make mistakes, whatever, and go back to it, and it's always right there. Okay. So. Mistakes. You don't make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best part of culinary. Now, the roast chicken, by the way, has a, a quarter cup of sriracha, quarter cup of honey. We have some uh, thyme and parsley in there, salt, pepper, olive oil, uh, garlic, butter, uh, apricot jam, just any kind That's of That's going to be on top. Okay, uh -huh. right, the apricot jam's on top, and of course, some dried apricots to uh, put into the jam. Pretty simple, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, like I said, well, we get the um, uh, marinade on the chicken the night before, we're good to go. Brown it off in the pan, finish it in the oven. Um, and it's really pretty, too. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's uh, beautiful. Lots of uh, colors. These are bone-in breasts. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm old-fashioned. I think it tastes better if it's cooked on the bone. Okay. I think the, the mar marrow from the bone adds a lot to the flavor. I just uh, took out the backbone. You know, okay. This is kind of, kind of ugly. All right. Looking and beautiful. We're in a stock pot at work right now. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You've won some awards for plating. Um, Have you not? It's been a long time. Yeah. Um, kids today get really, really fancy. <laughs> Make a dinosaur like me look. Uh, well, you you can be the judge now. All right, exactly. So, yeah. so what are we doing um, there? We're putting take a little bit of the uh, cooking liquid, and I deglaze this with a white wine. Uh, for Passover, you could do a manischewitz. 
Um, so far, everything we've tried to do with Manchev has been too sweet, and I spend uh, half an hour trying to undo it afterwards. So <laughs> okay. um, be very careful with that. All right, um, very good. Anyway, but, um, uh, I'm dumping that into the uh, apricots, and this is just straight up the juice of one lemon with um, apricot jam and some dried apricots as okay. well. And just like the old-fashioned style you've been having okay. at uh, Hanukkah. For years. And you're trying to reduce it to what point? Is it uh, um, syrupy or what's what would yeah, you call the, the consistency? Yeah, the texture what you want is nappe. So if you did it in the back of a spoon like that, and you um, run your finger through it, see how it stays separated. Yes. Okay. Call that nappe. Gotcha. But the, what you get coming out of that jar when you, uh, you uh, melt it down is going to be about perfect every okay. time. Uh, and then we just. Oh, this is. Oh, wow! Look at that. Um, if you have a large group of people, um, do this once. Put it in your oven to hold so you get ready for a service. And this first layer will get kind of hard, sticky, and then service it. Uh, uh, put it on again when it comes out for service, and it's pretty again, plus it's penetrated a little bit. Oh, beautiful. All right, so this is ready to be put. That's it. Back on the stand here. I don't think we need to garnish it more. I, um, in the past, I've uh, garnished it with fresh thyme at the end, but I actually think it looks better without it. I think uh, it's perfect. Yeah, I think we right. leave it alone. Let's see if our fish cooperate now. All right, so this was in there for about four or five minutes. Yeah, um, our convection over here is less than uh, impressive. Okay. <laughs> well, we're there. <laughs> and uh, can you guys see that? It's, um, that is beautiful. I actually recommend browning a little bit longer than we have here, um, but you're not on TV and you're not in a hurry, so you know take your time. <laughs> um, uh, pour another round of cocktails, have fun with your friends. If you give it another five minutes, you'll appreciate it. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Okay, so here we are with the broccoli. That looks like we planned it that way. <laughs> TV magic. Oh, Got look at this. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And um, that's beautiful. Look at that. Wonderful. Now, how do you prepare the asparagus? Um, just butter, salt, pepper, garlic, and I barely cook it. I okay. like I like the bite of it. Yeah, I'm, I love it in soup and sauces and things. As if uh, that's the route that we're going. But if you have your choice, the less you cook it, I think the better it is. Okay. So. Now I didn't ask about the, uh, the vegetables over here too. How are those done? That was pretty random. That was just uh, squash that I thought looked really good in the market, and um, I sautéed those with uh, the same time that I marinated the chicken in. And um, I, I did I'll put a shot of sriracha in there, too. Okay. So. <laughs> Just for a bit of zing. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So we've done the broccoli salad. We've done the asparagus with the salmon. And we've done the chicken with the, uh, with the squash. So now we have the it's latkes. It's like a feast. We it is a feast. It's the, beautiful. The main course yet. So now the latkes and the brisket. So what are we doing next? All right. I'm, we're going to start with the uh, latkes. You can see them over there um, while I get this ready. Okay. Um, and it's your... Uh, um, Bring them over here. Take a look. Yeah. It's a potato pancake that uh, you've had for... Um, beautiful. This holiday, probably more often than not. Um, Your stuff is always perfectly browned. I tend to burn things. 
What's the secret um, there? Just not just slow. Slow, yeah. slow and low. All and, right. Uh, if you catch me in a work in a busy night, that may not always be the case. You can leave that over here because we're gonna uh, we're gonna brown oh, a couple right. of those off. Um, and while that's getting hot, we'll uh, pull out our brisket, which is the reason people come for a Hanukkah. Is, is there another towel in there? There is another towel right here. You need for it to hold on to it? Yeah. Here we go. How about something like that? Would that work? I mean, perfect. Oh. There. You see the that well over there? This is uh. The Let's bring that over here, Jeff. Let's yeah. we'll bring this over, and you can put that over here. This is a brisket we were talking about earlier. Beautiful. Um, and whether you choose to. Smoke it yourself or to buy it already done. Um, if you finish it uh, wrapped in the foil with the rosemary on top of the vegetables, it's pretty much a no-fail. I mean, you can't go wrong. Um, that we're gonna is garnish wonderful. it really simple uh, with a little more rosemary. Um, okay. So when you cook it with it, it gets kind of ugly. So <laughs> okay. as the flavor goes uh, goes out of it, uh, so does the uh, aesthetics. I remember when we were cooking the uh, the lamb for Passover, you had taught me something new, and that was to just take the rosemary as it is like this and put it on top as it cooks, and the oil goes in. You're not trying to cook the herb itself. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much just the uh, essential oils from fresh herbs that, uh, that contain the majority of the flavor. Um, there's some that you like to cook with, like green onions themselves. Mm -hmm. I, anything you put those in and cook a long time, it just gets a nice sweet flavor. Um, but most things, uh, the oil comes right off of it, and it's just sitting in your pot, taking up space. Gotcha. Now, you're putting au jus on there. Now, how did you uh, prepare the au jus? Uh, the au jus is the cooking drippings uh, from here, along with uh, Bolero wine, and uh, all of the... Tips and ends of the vegetables that are there, the shallots, the onions, the celery, the carrots. Um, and uh, basically just cook it down, reduce it, strain it. Okay. Um, you're going to want to go, um, and we've gone another third since we were here. You want to take about two-thirds out. Okay. Um, and uh, if you didn't put salt in it to begin with, that should be about right. All right. If uh, if you overdo it, that's where you notice it. That, Hey, that's saltier than it should be. <laughs> okay. Add liquid to it and you'll be fine. Oh, okay, very good. I guess so, that makes sense. When it's more concentrated, the, the salt is also going to be more concentrated. All right, I'm going to switch right. around you and do uh, that, because that is hot. Okay. All right, so. And it looks cool the way Angie did that, doesn't it? it? Angie always does everything perfect here. Makes the, the kitchen just look absolutely beautiful. All right, so now right. the latkes. The recipe's in there. It's very, very <laughs> simple. It's a fresh egg, grated potato, um, a little bit of soft rising flour, salt, pepper, garlic, and onions. Um, another this corn is, star, right? Yeah, this is, uh, uh, yeah, with the flour. Um, this is another one where there's a shortcut. You can buy the uh, hash brown potatoes already prepared in the uh, refrigerated section of your grocery store, in it, and this is fine. Um, if you do actually grate them yourself, you want to cook them slower. Okay. Um, you know, raw potatoes already take forever. And once they're blanched, not quite as long. Okay, so this one you have, what have you done with these ones? Are this these one... 
Uh, these are blanched, or are yeah, they? no, these I graded yesterday. Okay, um, but I have the uh, luxury of working in a commercial kitchen, so I can just throw them through the uh, Robocoop. And ah, um, if you were feeding a group of twelve, green potatoes would be a part that you would remember not to do next time. <laughs> Now, what kind of temperature, as we sp spoke about browning, what kind yeah, of Yeah, we're going to go medium, uh, low again. And okay. the medium I use for cooking is the same for all this. It's olive oil, um, canola oil, and melted butter. Um, okay. I get a good result. I get um, a longer uh, uh, time that it can be hot and the butter won't burn. But you get the flavor from it. So okay. um, good. I'm a southern boy. If it doesn't have butter in some <laughs> something's missing. I'm not sure what it is, but... Now, some oils are better than others because of the uh, the smoke point. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so explain to us what the smoke point um, is. That's the temperature that it will start to burn and smoke. Mm -hmm. um, and there are ways around that by mixing different oils together. Um, butter is very, very low. Um, peanut oil is probably the highest that I work with on a regular basis. Avocado is pretty high, too. Isn't uh, it? Avocado is relatively yeah. high. Um, uh, it has a pretty uh, distinct flavor, though. Mm. Um, if Not a bad one, but you might not want that in everything. So I hear you. You, uh, you wouldn't want to make cookies with it. And a lot of folks uh, cook with coconut oil, but that has a relatively low smoke point as well, um, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, what's it we made with uh, coconut oil? We made arancini with coconut oil because it was all we had. Mm. And it was the best I'd ever had. Really? And I was expecting it to be like kind of sweet because you think coconut, you think uh, sweet. Not at all. Mm. Just really mild, well-rounded. It's um, that's all I could see. If you had to get down to just one for health reasons, that'd be one be easy to live with. And that's there's a reason for that is that when they refine coconut oil, of course, refining is going to involve some cooking and some high temperature. Uh -huh. That's what takes the coconut taste out. Oh, okay. So it's the part, raw, uh. yeah, the raw stuff in the store is where you have the smell, and that's actually with all the uh, health properties that are touted in in all the the magazines and everything. That's from that type of oil. But uh, once you cook it, yeah, the, the smell comes out. It's refined, and then and the process didn't uh, do anything uh, right. negative not, to the health aspect. Yeah, it's not not negative uh, to the health aspect, but it doesn't just have some of the uh, the initial properties that it had. So that makes interesting. Sense. Here, let me get some of this out of our way while that was brown for a all second. Right. Very good. Well, this looks excellent. So again, this is for 12 to 15 people, lots of different choices. So Chef, when you are doing this with folks, uh, you are separating the meats for folks. They can have a little bit of everything. Is that right, the idea to have yeah, a taste um, of a few things? Yeah, uh, you've a pretty wide selection for uh, what we have here. Um, we're not really hitting on the vegetarian thing. That ah, well. we got the broccoli but, salad. Come on, uh, it's our right. Um, there are <laughs> options here, um, and we do believe it. Or not. See, what do we have there? One, two, three. We four, have a lot five, of vegetables. Six, seven, eight. Yeah, we've got eight. You're vegetables. fine. You're I mean, good. You know, you know we could be doing a lot worse. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, seven branch menorah for Hanukkah, right? Seven vegetables. Maybe that's what we should do. Ah, Make sure you have seven oh, yeah, vegetables. Green onions. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Anybody that's seen the Passover oh, seen gosh. my utter humiliation with the uh, uh, food processor. And uh, I have a little fryer, and I think it's even made by the same company. And I just was like, nah, not going to do it. <laughs> We're just keep it simple. <laughs> or, um, I think the funniest thing was that nobody saw because you yeah. can't smell on television. We could hear, it was a little mi mixer about this big, and we could hear it smoking, or smell it smoking. 
<laughs> we knew it was dying. We were just trying to cover it up. <laughs> Everything's fine. That thing, I think it stayed here in the trash can. I don't think it went home with you. Um, but I gotta be honest, we made it by hand probably in less time anyway. And, um, you know, I, we made a couple jokes about it along the way. Yeah, I don't think funny. anybody was seriously disappointed. So um, now, there was a panic moment, though. <laughs> you were waiting here until... Uh, you can get a solid uh, bottom, bottom. Yeah, well, um, uh, basically the egg will uh, solidify first and then the flour will start to brown and hold it together. When you get to that point, we'll flip it over to the other okay, side. So kind of like a, like a pancake. So what I was saying, if you do uh, buy those uh, hash browns already grated, um, you uh, won't have as much initial starch in there. Um, yeah, so they'll cook, cook a lot faster. Yeah, and they will yeah. cook a lot faster and actually cook a little bit more evenly, too. Oh, so, really? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, they, uh, it's probably a salt water solution that they use to, uh, to pull them out. And they have to put some kind of preservative in there because obviously the potatoes aren't gray. I and if you ever peel the potato and left it in the sink, you know, it doesn't take very long for them to turn gray. Um, so... I read the package, and it's what you think it would be. It's citric acid. Um, so it doesn't affect the flavor or anything, but it does pull all the starch and water out of the potatoes, which is so why it works. So that's handy on a day where you've got lots of people over, you're doing lots of things, and you don't want to have to babysit the potatoes. Mm -hmm. Okay. It'd be uh, uh, also if you uh, had children in the kitchen, you were going to let them do part of it. Um, we we're going to talk about how much easier this is to do with a um, little uh, ice cream scoop, but I forgot mine, and I can't find the one that is here from when I used to work here. So, um, so is that just, what you uh, use to portion out the latkes? Is that right? Yeah, usually it's okay. the perfect little copies. You get a number 20 disher like you use for sour cream or whatever. You put it in the pan, turn it upside down, mash it down, and it's perfect every time. I see. So. Okay. Sounds good. Now, these are just about done. That didn't take it very no, long No, they don't take very really. long. And these were not even the uh, the, the refrigerated uh, pre-prepared no. ones. Um, so it looks good. Okay, so we have everything up. We're ready. there. Yeah. This is wonderful. Just load these on here. Okay. And, uh, so we, we have the the. Oh yeah, I did. I, did that was only one. Just, I forgot about that. Was that just to take Angie some of the oil off? Angie got that for me too. Was Thank that, you once again. Was that the idea to take yeah, some oil just off? to drain a little bit oh, of the okay. oil? So. We just have a, a paper towel uh, folded up on uh, on the plate there. But hey, if you like oil, you know, yeah. put them right up. It's good oil. <laughs> it is. All right. So, Scott, what do you think would be the hardest thing to duplicate from what we've done today? To duplicate, I think... Um, Probably the chicken I would find a little challenging, but really? the rest I think I could do. I um, don't know what our audience thinks, but I don't know. You don't have to do all of these. I suppose you could just do no, one of them or double up or triple yeah, up. Yeah, probably fold well into uh, most menus. I mean, for me, everything is just a piece of cake except the brisket. Yeah. There's just so many, you know, if you get a brisket that has too much fat in it, you don't take enough off. And I mean, that can be a very, very tricky thing. Um, and taking the time to do it properly is why I think that uh, Jewish mothers are so much famous for their brisket. It's just, you know, you stay in the kitchen all day, you watch it, you trim it perfectly, you know, it's, uh, it is a little more involved than, uh, than most other things. What do you think is the easiest thing for a, a beginner chef to do? Um, the home chef. Sam, Sam is probably the easiest. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, if you were uh, to ask me what I think would be a good place to start, start with the lockers. Okay. It's fun, and there's a lot of different things you can do. You fold all different kinds of cheese, um, all different kinds of herbs. Um, I didn't do any of the accompaniments that normally go with them because there are so many. Okay. I mean, obviously, applesauce and uh, sour cream are traditional, but, I mean, they're good with pretty much everything. I mean, I I can't imagine anything you put on there and go, oh, that's not good. It's like a pancake yeah, and a hash brown. Yeah, what, what, exactly. What doesn't go with a pancake yeah. and a hash brown? <laughs> <laughs> Chef Rich, thank you for joining us today. I think this is our whole meal, is it not? I believe that's it. Let's put it, it together right. and see what it looks like all. All right, so we'll put it all together. Put the lekkas over here. Yeah. And there we are. Okay, beautiful. This is our Hanukkah meal for... I think we're ready to celebrate. We yeah. are. All right, so Chef Rich, thank you for joining us today. Again, let's review what we have here. Well, first of all, thanks for having me again. And we've got our smoked brisket. Um, this is a rosemary smoked brisket. It's the only thing other than the that's different than the traditional. We had our latkes here. Um, our honey sriracha chicken with apricot glaze, and then our uh, Parmesan Asiago crusted salmon. Um, and way down there at the broad bottom is the broccoli salad. And so, this should feed a good 12 to 15 people, easily, right? Easily, easily. Right. Um, if uh, uh, you don't have any vegetarians, I think you just hit one out of the park. So. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, thanks again. And Chef Rich Hall's information there is at the bottom of your screen if you're interested in finding more about him, what he can do for you, and uh, find out some of his recipes. And also remember the beautiful kitchen behind us. Angie Clark of A Rude Awakening did that for us. And if you'd like to come and uh, ask her to do something for your house, absolutely. There's her email at the bottom of the screen. Thanks for joining us for Hanukkah. We hope you make this. We're going to enjoy it now. And happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Hey, welcome back to Hanukkah 2021. Up next, we have David Robinson, Pastor David Robinson. You know David Robinson was a pastor? Yes, he is. Uh, you've seen him on Shabbat Night Live a few times before as a co-host with me. And uh, David has a really good uh, a gift for, for teaching. And he can tell the story of Hanukkah like no one else. He's gonna tell you the history of it, what it means, what it means for us as believers today. So without further ado, please welcome Pastor David Robinson. Shalom, everyone. For those of you that may not know, my name is Pastor David Robinson. I am the Director of Ministry Development here at A Root Awakening International. You know, as I drove up to work this morning and got out of the car walking to the building, I was soaking in the fresh North Carolina late fall air. As a lover of the outdoor, this is one of my favorite times of the year. As my wife tells me sometimes, she says, this is the only time of the year that you like to go grocery shopping. And the reason for that is, is when I go hunting, I always tell her I'm going grocery shopping. So I absolutely love Yahovah's Outdoors. And most of us as Torah followers, we have just observed the last fall feast, major feast of Sukkot. And I hope all of you that observed Sukkot had a wonderful, spiritually fulfilling time. Now, as we enter into the winter months, we have a minor feast day that is coming up, and that feast is called Hanukkah. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in a mainstream uh, denominational church, 
the Feast of Hanukkah was never mentioned. And the reason because of that was it was considered to be a Jewish holiday. So I can say that our denomination uh, did not observe anything that resembled a Jewish holiday. And some of you may be asking yourself, well, what does Hanukkah really mean and why should I celebrate it? Hanukkah in Hebrew means dedication, the Feast of Dedication. It's also known as the Festival of Lights and also the Feast of the Maccabees. You see, way back in 334 BC, Alexander the Great, and he was barely 20 years old, crossed the sea, and within 11 years, he had conquered the known world with his primary goal to bring Greek culture to the world. And we know that better is Hellenism. So while the land of Israel was under the control of Alexander the Great, he allowed the Jews to continue the religious practices. He wasn't a heavy hand ruler. In fact, he was called a benevolent ruler. But after the death of Alexander, his generals began to fight among themselves over the empire. And as a result, Judea fell under the control of the Seleucid Empire. So about a century after the death of Alexander the Great, the Seleucid Empire came under control of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, he was not a good guy. He was referred to as the evil root. He viewed the Jews as barbaric subjects, and his main ambition was to Hellenize all of them. And the sad thing is, um, many of these Jews actually began to adapt to the Hellenistic way of life. Well, there was this very influential Jew named Jason. Jason, who was actually born Joshua, but he chose to go by his Greek name. He already had a really strong following of Jews who opposed the strict application of Jewish law. He was able to buy the position of high priest. He promised the king that if you let me do certain things, I'll make sure that I pay you well. So he wanted to build a gymnasium. And he told the king that he would give him silver if he let him do so, and he was allowed to do it. Now, what took place in these gymnasiums had a, had a lot of sexual content, and also the Greek gods were worshipped in these gymnasiums. Some Jews that participated in the games, which I must tell you were played in the nude, went to extraordinary measures to remove signs of the covenant of circumcision, they actually went through painful procedures to present themselves as uncircumcised. As time moved on, the priesthood was sold to the highest bidder, and the person who would win would rob the holy temple to pay for his office. It was then that the Jewish people began to riot. Antiochus then attacked Jerusalem. He plundered the temple, uh, he attacked on the Sabbath, and the reason he did that is he knew the Jews would not raise a weapon to fight back. It was a, it was a massacre. The streets ran red with blood. Uh, thousands of people were slaughtered. Um, many were captured, sold into slavery. A large portion of the city was burnt to the ground. After this happened, if a Jew was caught reading the Torah, they were killed. Torah scrolls were hunted down, they were destroyed, circumcision was outlawed. 
But the last humiliation was he actually ordered the people to worship pagan gods inside the temple. A new altar was built and unclean animals were sacrificed on this new altar. Sex acts took place inside the temple of God. The first major revolt took place in a little town called Modim. It was like 15, 20 minutes, 20 miles outside of Jerusalem, where Jewish priest Mattathias was confronted and asked to offer a pig sacrifice. He refused to do it. Now, after he refused to do that, the tension started growing between the people and, and the Seleucid army. And this Jewish man steps up and says, you know what, I'll do it. So he comes up and he made the sacrifice. The zealot Mattathias killed the man right there on the altar, and then he killed an officer of the Seleucids. The rebellion had broken out against Antiochus and the Seleucid monarchy. And it was at this time, what we know as guerrilla warfare, this is when it was born. Mattathias appointed his son Judah, known as Judah Maccabee. His nickname was The Hammer. He, he, he appointed him to, to run the whole uh, campaign. And several times over the next two years, Judah and his men defeated armies that were 10 times their size. The Jews successfully drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem. Like I said, it took about two years. And they did that relying mainly on these guerrilla warfare tactics. They would hit and run, if you will. They, they wouldn't fight in the normal formations. So it really threw them off and they were able to be very successful. Finally, Judah and his men made their way to, into Jerusalem. When Judah and his men saw the temple, they tore their clothes and they mourned. Judah called out to his men and told them, cleanse the temple, rebuild its altar. Now, you will not find the story of Hanukkah in the Torah or, or in the writings uh, of the prophets. However, you will find reference to Hanukkah in the Brit Kadashah, the New Testament. So turn in your Bibles to John 10, 22 through 23. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Yeshua was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade, or Solomon's porch. And this was located on the eastern side of the temple's outer court. And I think what is really interesting is, this is John chapter 10, if we go back to John 8, 12, if you'll look at that. When Yeshua spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light of light. Now, Yeshua also told his disciples and is telling us as his disciples in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We can see throughout the New Testament that Yeshua celebrated the feast days. And as we can see here in the scripture, we also know that he celebrated Hanukkah. I mean, I truly believe that Yeshua made sure that he was always in Jerusalem at the temple during Hanukkah. 
I mean, he who was called the light of the world would have taken great joy in the festival of lights as a celebration of hope and justice against the dark rulers that existed in those days. When we look at stories like Hanukkah, you know, it's very easy to only see the blessing, the triumph of a story. For, you know, Hanukkah is an amazing story that is all about good overcoming evil. And that if we trust in our Father's promises, He will deliver us. It's a story that teaches us that with Yahuwah's intervention, His people can overcome any adversity. As believers in Yeshua, the light of the world, we celebrate the one who has delivered us from darkness. However, like many stories in the Bible, there is the rest or the other part of the story. It is also a story that teaches us or gives us warnings of what will happen if we become conformed to the ways of the world. It teaches us that if we, his people, turn away from his commandments, we will also become like many of the children of Israel in this Hanukkah story. See, many of the Israelites had become comfortable, content, rich, successful in this Hellenistic culture. The reality is this, just as there are physical attacks against our body, which we are all aware of, just like the children of Israel, they were, they were murdered and slaughtered. There are also chronic diseases that attack our spirit man. And one of the deadliest spiritual diseases is apathy. See, apathy is um, a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or, or concern. It, is caring very little, if any, about others, ministry, spiritual growth, or what God wants us to actually do. It's, it's knowing what to do, but choosing to do nothing. Probably it's easy, the easiest way to define apathy is just, I don't care. I could care less. We need to understand that apathy is a slow, silent killer. It can sneak into the lives of believers pretty much undetected. And most who have this spiritual disease are deceived and completely unaware that they even have it. Becoming apathetic is a condition that doesn't happen overnight. It's a, it's a slow transition. It's a slow fade. It's kind of like gaining weight. How many of you, you know, looked in your closet, grabbed something you want to wear, and you try to put it on, and then you're like, when did this happen? It doesn't fit anymore because you've gained weight. But a lot of times you're not even aware you're gaining weight until you try to put something on that you haven't worn in a while. It's a slow fade. And in the story of Hanukkah, we can see that many of the children were enticed by this Greek culture that catered to enjoyable things of the flesh like sexual freedom, you know, the eating and drinking, wealth, acceptance, so they saw that this way of life is fun and it's easy and it doesn't require any rules or regulations. If so, just a few. This culture taught to think of yourself first. Do whatever you want to do. And many of the Israelites had forgotten, they had forgotten what it felt like to be close, protected by the Creator, to have zeal for His promises, because, oh, you know, this time has passed and the stories that were told of the Exodus were just, his, just old stories that happened a long time ago. 
So they had just forgotten. We should ask ourselves this. You remember when you first came to, to Yeshua? Do we still say no to the same things we said no to when we first gave our hearts to Yeshua? Do we still have the convictions we had in that renewed state of mind when we came to know him? I mean, remember the transformation that took place, how all of a sudden you were fully aware of the enemy's tactics. Now, we can see several examples of apathy in the word. And one example I would want to share with you is um, if you turn to 2 Kings 20, 14 through 19. 2 Kings 20, 14 through 19. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say? And where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet asked then, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? I mean, can you believe this guy? These people, these people are gonna come back and they're gonna take the kingdom into captivity. Your sons will be made eunuchs, and all of you, and all you have to say is it won't happen during my lifetime. I'll enjoy peace and security as long as I live. Another example of apathy that we can find in the scripture can be found in the book of Haggai. Now, Haggai is a really short book. It's only a few chapters. And in the book of Haggai, the prophet was called by God to go and speak to Israel because apathy had set in. You see, King Cyrus had given permission to the Israelites to actually return to the land and rebuild the temple. They went back. They began to clear the debris. They started doing sacrifices again, and they laid the foundation. There were great celebrations. But then, the people started looking at their own affairs. They, became, they, they got busy. And for 14 years, the temple work was neglected. It had stopped. Let's read Haggai 1, 2 through 6. Thus speaks the Lord of the host, saying, This people says... The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Now, paneled houses, it's very interesting because panel houses were made um, out of cedar. So they had cedar from the floor all the way to the ceiling in their common house because this is something you normally saw in very wealthy homes. So it makes you even wonder that some of the money and funds that were supposed to go to build the temple, that the people, because of their complacency, 
looking at their own affairs, decided to work on their own homes. So he says, is it, uh, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Look what you've done. You may have sown much and bring in little. You have so much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Because apathy and contentment had set in, the, the children of Israel had forfeited the call to do the work of the Lord. They looked at it as, it's just not important, or someone else can do it. I, I'm too busy. And by doing that, they lost the blessing that the Father wanted to give them. He took away and he, he basically cursed the land for a time. What had happened to them is they had become lukewarm. And we, we all know that term, but let's look at that scripture about lukewarm. And it's Revelation 3, 15 through 17. I know what you were doing. You are neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. For you keep saying, I am rich. I have gotten rich. I don't need a thing. You don't know that you are the one who is wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, the city of Laodicea was located between the cities of Hierapolis and Colossae. Uh, both of these cities had, were known for their, you know, they had great water sources. Uh, Hierapolis had the hot springs, and uh, they were believed to have medicinal value, and Colossae had the clear, cool waters. And then there was Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was not known to have good water. It had lukewarm, dirty water. And when people tried to drink it, they would spit it out of their mouth. So when Yeshua actually rebuked the Laodicean church, it wasn't that they were grossly immoral or that there were uh, even doctrinal issues. It was, it was for apathy, for contentment. Now, I truly believe Yahovah wants each of us to constantly ask ourselves these questions. Do I have spiritual apathy? Do I find myself being content? I'm con being content where you're at with the Lord. Do I find myself not going to church or to my home group as much? 
Um, do I find myself not wanting to be involved in fellowship functions? Do I find myself reaching for the remote control more instead of my Bible? So just like the people in the book of Haggai, has the Father given you a specific call or a job to do, and you've just put it off, maybe for years, just like they did? And if you said yes to any of these questions, you know, you may be asking yourself, okay, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, I have apathy in certain areas. What do I do? Well, the antidote for apathy is something that is talked about very little in our churches, in our fellowships, in our mitzvahs today. Our churches, for the most part, become more about entertainment, and they have teachings that just tickle the ears, the feel good, you know, prosper, go and prosper. God wants you to be rich. But the antidote, the answer to this is one thing, repentance, repentance. If we look at 1 John, let's look at 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us from, of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Acts 3, 9 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And then in Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. I think we can see this in the Hanukkah story, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So that is the answer, that if we repent and turn from our wickedness, we will find mercy and blessings. We will have favor with the Father. And there's one other scripture I love where Paul reminds us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 11. He says this, now these things happened to them. Happened to who? Happened to the Israelites. Why? As examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. You know, we as Torah followers have been blessed to come to the knowledge and truth of God's law, of his feast days and, and of his Sabbath. But we must not forget about repentance, that repentance is key to being empowered by his spirit. Look, I mean, the last year and a half has been a trying time for all of us. I mean, we've we're all faced with the reality that the world we live in now is totally different. It's a different world, a world of uncertainty, COVID-19 pandemic, racial wars, riots, natural disasters, businesses shutting down left and right, gas prices, people are losing their jobs left and right and with nowhere to turn. And I think it's kind of crazy, the very group of people that are telling us that we have to do what they say and that we don't have a choice are the same ones that are saying, uh, that are fighting for pro-choice and abortion saying that you have a choice. It's just a, it's a crazy world we live in. And then you had the media, the liberal media is using propaganda and manipulation tactics to cause division and to turn us against one another. It's the foundational values of this nation and our faith have been challenged and rocked to the core.
This president administration is publicly denouncing the conservative voice and literally seeks to silence it. And we now have a ruler that places his hand on the Word of God, on the Bible, and then turns around and signs into law legislation that is an abomination to its author. We never thought, I'm sure all of you, never thought that this nation's moral condition would digress to the level that, is ha that it has. But we have been taught, the Word has taught us of the dangers, the warnings, and has given us the ways out, all in the Word. Brothers and sisters, it's now. It's now, with everything that's going on in this world, as believers, we need to be stronger than ever. And our strength only comes through unity. We need to get rid of the, the differences that don't even matter. I mean, you know, you have uh, people that are walking in knowledge but don't even look at the things of the Spirit anymore. And you have people that are walking in the Spirit and aren't aware of you know, the knowledge that most of us as Torah followers have discovered. But we need to remember that as, as a Torah follower, I once was there. I can work with this individual because they believe in the same Messiah we do, okay? We need to work together for the greater good of the kingdom. And it says in the scriptures, they will know us by the love we have for each other. I hope you really enjoy this Feast of Hanukkah, celebrating our Savior Yeshua, the light of the world, the one who delivered us from the enemy, the oppressor. Remember what he has done for you. Love your brothers and sisters. And when you read and celebrate Hanukkah, remember the other side of the story. Be blessed, shalom. Hey, welcome back to Hanukkah 2021. We have a very special guest right now. If you've watched A Rude Awakening for quite some time, you may know this character, uh, Reuven Prager. He calls himself a Levite on duty. Reuven lives in Israel, where it, he has made, his, made it his mandate to uh, create those things which were in Israel way back in the day, what he calls Judaism 1.0, and then there was Judaism 2.0, now there's Judaism 3.0. What does all of that mean? Well, Reuven is going to explain all that, and he's going to explain what he's been doing for the last several years, trying to bring back the traditions of ancient Israel in preparation for the end times. Part of that is creating biblical dress, which is called Beged Ivri. Part of that is Zitzit, and uh, all the biblical dress that you see. He's bringing back some of the ancient trad traditions, such as uh, weddings done the way they used to do back in ancient Israel. He's bringing back the half shekel. He has minted a half shekel in preparation for the third temple ever since 1998 for every single year. Well, I'm not gonna tell you any more of the story. You have to stay tuned and watch this interview with Reuven Prager direct from Israel. Take a look. Well, happy Hanukkah from the Rude crew, from A Rude Awakening, and from Michael Rude to you. We thank you for joining us for this special event. Lots to know about Hanukkah, where it comes from, the history of it, and if you have a Bible with the book of Maccabees in it, as I do at home, an old Catholic Bible still has it in it, uh, it's a great and wonderful and rich history of Hanukkah, and even if you don't have that in it, uh, you can look in the Gospels and see where Yeshua and his disciples in winter went to the 
uh, porch of Solomon or Solomon's porch in the temple. That is a hint that that is Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah all about? And where have we gone from the original temple to now and with the Jewish people? Where are we now with the Jewish people and the uh, return of Yeshua and the first coming of Yeshua or of the Messiah as they see it? Uh, where are we with all of this? Someone who can help us to understand this is Reuven Prager, joining us from Israel today. Reuven, welcome to Hanukkah. Shalom from Jerusalem. Thank you for having me. Certainly. Now, you told me something briefly about uh, Judaism 3.0. Now, obviously, when we talk about 3.0, we're talking about, well, there must have been a 1.0 and a 2.0. Can you just give us a, a basic idea of what we're speaking of when we talk about uh, Judaism 3.0 with your work in Israel? For sure. Um, Hanukkah means dedication or rededication. And we have a verse that says, Chadesh Yemenu Kikedem, um, restore our days as of yore. Um, if we look at Jewish history over the last 3,000 years, the first period of Jewish history was the period where we came out of Egypt and we came to the land of Israel and we built the first temple. It was destroyed. We built the second temple and we, it was destroyed. And that could be considered Judaism 1.0, the period where the Jewish people were in the land of Israel. We were serving God in the holy temples the first temple and second temple, and we were land-based, temple-based religion. When the Romans destroyed the second temple in the year 70 and took us out into exile, that became the, began the period of Judaism 2.0, where they had to re, recreate Judaism, whereas being a temple-based, land-based religion, losing the land and losing the temple, they had to create a series of what we call in Hebrew zechers, remembrances, so that as we went out into exile, we'd be able to remember what our ancient culture was so that while we were out in exile, we wouldn't lose track of, 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 of what our ancient customs were. We'd be able to remember them so that when the generation arose that merited to return to the land of Israel, we'd remember how to restore our ancient customs. The period of exile is Judaism 2.0, right? Land-based, temple-based religion, Judaism 1.0. From the year 70 up until the year 1948 was Judaism 2.0, right? And once we returned to the land of Israel in 1948, and once, became, once again became a sovereign nation in our indigenous holy land, that became, be, began the period of Judaism 3.0, where all of the things that we've been doing as a remembrance for the last 2,000 years can be restored to their original form and my work in Begity Vri, those of you who are familiar with my work of the last, you know, 40 years, um, Beged Ivri, Beged means garment, Ivri means Hebrew, Beged Ivri, Hebrew garments, Israelite garments, was the first project that I took from thought to physical reality to restore our ancient Israelite garments. My work of the last three plus decades has been researching and restoring ancient Israelite customs 
um, taking what we've been doing as a zecher, as a remembrance for the last 2,000 years, researching it, restoring it, putting it back out on the streets of Jerusalem, and like, you know, now that we're back in the land, we don't have to do it as a zecher. We don't have to do it as a remembrance. The remembrance was so that while we were out in exile, we wouldn't forget what our ancient customs were. We remember them so that when we had the ability to come back and restore them, we'd remember how to. So the first project that I took from thought to physical reality was to restore our ancient dress. The fulfillment of the commandment of Tzitzit from the book of Numbers, um, where we're commanded to put fringes on the corners of our garments throughout our generations. How did we fulfill that in exile? We wore a little undergarment that we hid underneath our Gentile apparel, and when we would meet secretly behind a locked door in the morning for a prayer service, we'd wrap ourselves in a piece of cloth big enough to be, consi be considered a garment, known as the talit, or the talit kedol, the large talit, the prayer shawl, right, that everybody's familiar with, the Jewish prayer shawl, right? Our ancestors didn't have an undergarment that they hid underneath Gentile apparel. They didn't have an artificial prayer shawl. We wore our fringes as a beautiful outer garment. So my first project that I took from thought to physical reality was to restore our native Israelite dress so that those of us who return to the land, we can begin to dress and look like we live here. The second project we took from thought to physical reality was to restore our ancient marriage ceremony. You're all familiar with Jewish weddings. We get to a Jewish wedding, we stand under a chuppah. Very often they use a talus, they use a flat cloth. But a chuppah in the land of Israel was never a talus, it was a kippah. It was a dome made of pure crimson silk with fine beaten gold work, and it stood on intricately carved poles. It was known as the chuppah chatanim. And we would crown our brides with a Jerusalem of gold bridal crown, and we would carry the bride on a royal wedding litter that's first described in the book Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where it describes the wedding litter made for King Solomon's wedding. And since 1992, we've been doing biblical weddings throughout the Holy Land. The third project we took from thought to physical reality was to restore the holy half shekel, book of Exodus, chapter 30, verses 11 till 16, where God commands each of us to give us an atonement for our soul back to God, half a shekel of the holy shekel, which weighed 20 gera, right? Um, like today on Purim, we have a custom of giving a half dollar, a half mark, a half franc, a half ruble, in remembrance of the half shekel, right? To keep the, the, the remembrance of it alive during the 2,000 years of exile so that when we got back to the land, we'd know how to restore it to its real form. And project by project, we restored the, 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 the tribal flag of Levi. We restored uh, Luach HaMelech, the king's calendar, the first third temple era calendar ever created, right? Project after project, taking the commandment that we fulfilled in its exiled form as a remembrance, researching it out, restoring it, putting it back out on the streets of Jerusalem, and that's Judaism 3.0, right? Taking the exiled form of Judaism and bringing it back to a land-based, temple-based religion. Now tell me this. So you mentioned that uh, people used to wear their uh, the talit, the uh, talikatan, uh, underneath their clothing. Why was it worn underneath as opposed to over top? Like you mentioned, it it should be done. 
because in the year 138, Hadrian, after the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, forbade under penalty of death, forbade us from fulfilling the commandment. So in order not to get killed, in order to remember the commandment, right, um, with both fingers up in quotation marks, in order to remember the commandment, right, we we created a little four-cornered garment, and we attached the fringes to it, hid it underneath our Gentile apparel since, so that we can remember the commandment. But because it says you should put fringes on the corners of your garments throughout your generations, and it's stretching the imagination to consider the talit katan, the little undergarment, a garment. A garment's something you put out in public, you put on and go out in public and consider yourself dressed. Nobody would wear a talit katana with nothing else on and consider themselves dressed. So at the time that we developed the talit katan, the small talit, we developed what became known as the talit gadol, or the large talit, so that when we would meet secretly behind a locked door, we could wrap ourselves in a piece of cloth big enough to be considered a garment, because the talit gadol, the large pressure, it's big enough to cover your torso. You can wrap yourself up in it, right, and consider yourself dressed. And that was the beginning of the custom of wearing the undergarment in the year 138. I got you. Okay, so that and makes that's, that's like that's like three generations after the destruction of the temple. The temple was destroyed in the year 70. 68 years later, uh, 30, 30, 68 years later, uh, 70, 138, yeah, 68 years later, who had Hadrianus, the Hadrianic decrees after the Bar Kokhba revolt. Right, because the Bar Kokhba revolt was 135, you know, to, to 138, and, and at the end of the the, the Bar Kokhba revolt, which we also lost, Hadrian decreed that it was forbidden under penalty of death and fulfilling the commandments, so we couldn't wear our tzitzit out anymore. So this may be different than what some folks think, where they think that what we do now as remembrances were the actual things that were being done back then, but they are just remembrances, they are not the actual practices. Can you explain the difference there? Well, yeah, that's Judaism 2.0. That's, you know, that's, that's um, uh, doing the best you can with what you got. <laughs> you know, like when you're in exile, like for instance, when I travel, Right for 35 years, I've been doing lecture tours, and 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 I've spent many a many a, a a happy evening in North Carolina with you guys, right? And you know, traveling around, you know. Um, in fact, sometimes a flight would land in Europe, and people would tell me, you know, you, you can't dress like this because oh, I don't I don't own any clothes that look like what you're wearing. I only have biblical garments. I only have baggy free, right? So all my all my garments have fringes on them. People say, oh, you can't go kill you in the streets here. You can't walk around France like that. You can't walk around England like that. America's different. America, you know, like, you know, you can get away with almost anything dress-wise, right? But I look pretty kooky over there in America walking around like I do, you know? In fact, that's how I act. How did Mike and I meet each other, right? <laughs> He's here in Israel. Right, <laughs> dressed like like he just stepped out of the Bible, right? And somebody said, "Oh, you know Reuben Prager," and he didn't. That's how we met because we both dress alike. <laughs> oh, really? Wow! Yeah, that's how it started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, while while we were in exile, um, we did what we could. You know, like when the temple was destroyed and we went out into exile, we didn't want to. We didn't want to lose like every other nation. 
that was destroyed thousands of years ago, they're gone. They're gone. The Greeks are gone. The Romans are gone. Everybody's gone. Not the Jews. Why? Because we took our culture, we took our customs, and we re- reformulated them for the, for, for, to, 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 to survive the exile so that we wouldn't forget our customs. Right? So we instituted a series of remembrances. Everything we do in contemporary Judaism, what you're just asking about just now, what everybody is familiar with, quote unquote, right, of Judaism, um, we formulated a series of remembrances so that while we were out in exile, we'd be able to remember what our ancient customs were so that when the generation arose that merited to return to the land of Israel, we'd remember how to restore our ancient customs to their real form. Now you mentioned and what I'm doing, what my work of the last several decades has been, is researching and restoring to the real form those things that we did strictly as a remembrance while we were in exile. Does that make sense to you? It, it does. Now tell me about uh, Zitzit. So Zitzit, somewhere yeah. white, somewhere white and blue. What's the difference? Where do we get the blue from? Tell us the whole story of, of where Zitzit come from and what they're intended for. So in the book of Numbers, we're given the commandment to see this. It says, you shall put fringes on the corners of your garments throughout your generations, and you shall put on the fringe of each corner a twist of blue. So one of the strands of the fringes has to be blue. And it has to be not just crayon, Crayola crayon blue. It has to be a particular blue from a particular dye source. And when we lost our presence in the land and we lost the temple, we lost our source for that particular blue dye. So while we were out in exile, we remembered the commandment of fringes with just the white fringes on either the undergarment or the prayer shawl, the artificial prayer shawl. And in 1887, one of the great sages of Europe, Rabbi Gershon Henrik Leiner, from the city of Radzin, in, in Eastern, in, uh, in White Russia, he left his village, went down to the Mediterranean, and spent three years researching every marine source that lives along the Mediterranean coastline until he came to the conclusion that he had positively re-identified the Chilazon, the, 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 the specific sea creature, the mollusk, from which the dye is extracted, and he began to produce the blue dye in 1887. And then there's another group that about 30 years ago started producing a blue dye from the trunculus murex from a sea snail that is actually the source for biblical purple. And, and so now, once again, we have the blue fringe. We're able to not only wear our, our, our fringes as an, a beautiful outer garment, but we're able to fulfill the entire commandment, including the, the required blue fringe. Now, the white part of the fringes is not, is not just white. If, what, if you were wearing a green garment, you didn't wear white fringes and, a blue, and, a, and one blue fringe, you wore seven green fringes and one blue fringe. If you were wearing an orange garment, you wore seven orange fringes and one of one of blue. So the what you're calling whites, because today the undergarment, the talus is basically white. You know, in exile, that's what we wore. White, you know, like the white undergarment, the white talus, right? 
But the truth of the matter is that the other seven fringes were made from the same material and color as the garment. So if you're wearing a purple garment, you wear seven purple to eat one in blue. When I was in the army here, right? <laughs> you know, I get my induction notice. I show up at the army base, right? They they expect me to fulfill the commandment fringes on one of these little dinky undergarments under my army uniform, right? I missed the biblical garment. So what did I do? I took all my army uniforms home and I redesigned them into four cornered garments. I sewed them closed in the front, opened them up on the side. I got a religious ruling that zippers are considered open even in a closed position, right? I I, I got khaki colored zippers so that it they they, they uh, uh, it, it, it wouldn't have a problem with camouflage, like the same color as the as the as the, the shirt, right? Khaki colored zippers, and I and I tied titsy my fringes with the blue fringe on the corners of my army uniform, and I showed up at the base, like I missed the biblical garments, right? So what I'm going to wear, I'm going to wear tzitzit, I'm going to wear fringes of exile in a, in a land of redemption? No way, man. Right? I transformed all my army uniforms into biblical garments, tied fringes on the corners, showed up at the base. What did they do? They tried me for destroying army property. And I said in my defense, I said, destroyed it. I sanctified it. I make a bracha. I make a blessing on my uniform when I get dressed in the morning. And they're thinking, you know, this guy's nuts. They threw me out of the army. They figured, get rid of this guy quick before he infects anybody, you know. And I'm home for 10 days. And they'd already invested money in training me, you know. They call me back. And they said, you know, come back, finish doing your army service. And they ordered me to restore my army uniforms to their previous condition. And I ignored the order. And they ignored me ignoring the order. And I mustered out as a sergeant with fringes on the corners of my army uniforms. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, go figure. I love you it. That's beautiful. I don't know if you can get away with that in the Marines, right? The U.S. <laughs> Marines. But it's, it's Israel. What are you going to do? They cut off my head for and sit on my army uniforms. I mean, <laughs> you know. That's hilarious. I love that. So, so really, then I didn't know that about the white. So, really, the white. If I was wearing it with this gray suit that I have, I would have a continuation of the gray material that's of this suit with one cord of blue. Is that correct? Well, yeah. You would you would spin you would spin fringes, but <clears throat> um, more likely on your light blue shirt. More likely. So you would have had, you know, more likely that would have been your outer garment. Well, I don't think, I think it would be your shirt that would be considered your outer garment, not necessarily the coat. Because you don't wear the coat all the time, but the shirt you're wearing, like when you come indoors, you take off your coat, you're still wearing your shirt. You know, but whatever color, if you, if, if that was your outer garment, that gray suit, that gray jacket, you would have had seven gray, you would, you would have taken the fibers of that, of that suit material and spun, spun fringes from it, right? And, and made seven gray titsy and one of blue, yes. 
Okay, that makes sense. And here's another question that often comes yeah. up. Uh, I, I'm thinking that uh, Hanukkah is, it gets the attention of the world, that a lot of people might be seeing uh, something like this for the very first time, uh, Torah-observant uh, Christian people, for lack of a better term, and they see the zitzit and they think, I want to follow Yehovah's ways, I love this. Uh, who can wear zitzit? Who is not intended to wear zitzits? Are there any rules as far as that goes? Well, it depends who you're asking. If you're, if you're asking Alpitor, according to, to, to Orthodox Judaism, Jews are supposed to wear tzitzit, just Jews, because it's a commandment for, for the Jewish people. You know, but there's a lot of people out there that want to identify with the commandments. You know, I, I figure it this way. I, I'd rather see, a, you know, a Gentile wearing tzitzit than being an anti-Semite beating up a Jew. Good point. You, you know what I'm saying? If you, if, you, if you love God so much and you love his Torah so much and you want to identify so much, you know, with fulfilling God's path, you know, what God wants, as, as a non-Jew, you know, the, the reason, the reason the, there is a law in the books that it's forbidden to sell fringes to a non-Jew because there was a period in history where a non-Jew would dress up as a Jew to gain his confidence and then would rob him and kill him. Right? Like in the old days from between shtetls in the old country, right? A guy's got a, 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 a cart and a, and a donkey or an ox or whatever, and he's going down the road and the Jew's, you know, hitching a ride, he's got his thumb out, he's hitching a ride, and he sees a guy Sitting up there on the on the on the agala on the, on the on the wagon and the guy's dressed and he's got tzitzit on and the Jew looks at him and he goes ah landsman you know I can, I can feel safe with him and he gets up on his on his cart and then the guy goes and kills him and robs him or robs him whatever it is right so they promulgated a law that it's it's prohibited to sell tzitzit to a non-Jew so that they don't do exactly that right that's different than a guy that's got his heart you know, like yearning to fulfill God's, to, to, to get so close to God, you know, that he wants to fulfill commandments that he's not even necessarily obligated to do. But he wants to get closer to God. He doesn't feel he can get close enough to God without doing that. You know, what can I tell you? Right. And, that's, that's, and, and, not, and, and, and also, you know, that's according to Jewish law. And this is not a, not a Jew, so he's not basing his life according to Jewish law. If he takes upon himself, you, you know what I'm saying? Right, yeah. So now okay. let me ask you this. So with, with uh, just a basic Torah observant uh, believer in Yeshua who wants to say, hey, I like, I love what Reuven is doing. Uh, now you, you still make uh, tzitzit, is that correct? Will, can uh, just anyone go on your website and, and order some tzitzit? Is that how that works? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't check people's circumcisions when I <laughs> when I take an order. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, 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 I'm happy to fulfill orders. Yeah. Okay, great. So yeah, I wanted to give you an opportunity to say something about this because uh, you are doing us a great service uh, coming on for this Hanukkah program. Thank you. You're giving uh, Michael Rood some more uh, time to heal before the cameras came on. We talked about how he had uh, had a stroke uh, a year or so ago, and he's still uh, recovering nicely. And it's, uh, we're very appreciative for you to come on and do this program. So uh, first of all, I want to, I mean, we want to support you as well, because uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the U.S. and Israel and a lot of 
countries are kind of cut off from each other right now. We need to come together, and this is a great way to come together. And so I would encourage anyone who's watching this to, uh, if you are interested in getting some zitzot from uh, from Reuven, uh, to get them. And, and Reuven, where can they go, first of all, to get the zitzit? And then we'll get on to a different topic here. Uh, my, my website, begitivri.com. You'll post it up there on your, on, your, on your screen there. Absolutely, the bottom of the screen. All right, great. So, okay, thank you for that. Yeah. Now, something else you're doing uh, is the holy half shekel. Now, uh, tell us, yeah. what is the purpose of the shekel? Where does it come from? And uh, why are we reintroducing it now? Maybe just take us through the whole, the whole thing here. All right, first thing to remember when, when we're speaking about the shekel, anywhere where the Torah speaks about shekels, it is never, ever referring to money. The shekel was not a currency, it was a weight. During the time, during the time of the Bible, there was no such thing as coins. There was no paper money, right? When Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah for a burial site in Hebron, he didn't whip out out of water and count out 400 shekels. They took 400 shekels of silver nugget or silver bars and weighed them against stone weights. A shekel a, uh, is, is broken down into 20 gera. The same way that an ounce is broken down into grams, gr, the shekel is broken down into gera, gr. There are 31.105 grams to a troy ounce, like a gold or silver ounce, or 28 grams to a regular, you know, tomatoes and cucumbers ounce, right? And the shekel is broken down into 20 gera, there are 20 gera to the shekel. So when it says that everybody shall give us an atonement for their soul back to God, half a shekel of the holy shekel, what they did during the entire period of the tabernacle, the entire period of the first temple, and a hundred years into the second temple era, was they would weigh 10 gera worth of silver nugget against stone weights. And Israelite weights were always made out of stone, never out of metal, because stone cannot contract or impart ritual impurity. And since what you're giving over to the Holy Temple had to be given over in a state of ritual purity, the weights themselves that you weighed your silver nugget against had to be made out of uh, uh, stone or glass. Glass is exceedingly rare. I've been collecting um, a first temple period weights for, for over 28 years. I've never seen one glass weight, but I've seen many, like I have a complete, almost complete collection of first temple era stone weights, right? During the entire period of the tabernacle, the entire period of the first temple, and 100 years into the second temple era, the way that we fulfill the commandment of, 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 of giving the machatzi shekel, giving the holy half shekel, was by weighing silver nugget against stone weights, and then giving that silver nugget over to the temple uh, agents, the, the, the collectors, you know, for, for the... For, for the temple. And the verses, the book of Exodus, chapter uh, chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, where God commands each of us to give us an atonement for our soul back to God, half a shekel of the holy shekel, which weighed 20 gera. Now, in the 6th century BCE, in Persia, the concept of coinage was introduced to the world for the very first time. 
200 years later, in the 4th century BC, the concept of coinage made its way to the Holy Land, introduced by the Greeks. When the Greeks conquered our area, they introduced the concept of coinage for, for the very first time. And from the 4th century BCE up until the year 127 BCE, we fulfilled um, the commandment of giving the half shekel using Greek silver shekels and half shekels known as didrachma and tetradrachma. In the year 127 BCE, the Romans beat the Greeks. They're now the empire. And you have to keep in mind that the, emperor, the emperors, they had the sole right to mint silver coinage, silver and gold coinage in the empire. They allowed the different countries to mint their own bronze coins. That's why you have all the various city-state bronze coins, like from the city of Gaza and from Benias and all these different places. But the minting of gold and silver coins was strictly the prerogative of the emperor. So when the Romans beat the Greeks, and the Romans operated two mints in the Middle East, one in the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, in Lebanon, one in the city of Antioch in Syria. The mint in Tyre produced Tyrian shekels and Tyrian half shekels of a 95% silver purity between the years 127 BCE and the year 19 BCE. In the year 19 BC, they closed the mint in Tyre and, 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 and moved it to Jerusalem. And from 18 BCE up until the year 65, the Tyrian half shekels were minted in Jerusalem specifically to fulfill the commandment of giving the half shekel and they were identical to the Tyrian shekel with the addition of a Jerusalem mint mark that looks like an English KP. They're Greek letters, comma, row, but it looks like a KP, and I hold it's the world's first kosher symbol, and it stands for kosher for Purim. Mm. That's a joke. Ha-ha, <laughs> kidding, all right. <laughs> in the year 65, in the year 65, in the year 65, we rebelled against Rome, and our first act of rebellion was to make our own independent coinage. And from the year 65 up until the year 70, I'm sorry, yeah, from the year 65 up until the year 70, we minted our own independent Jewish shekels, dating those coins, Shin Aleph, Shin Bet, Shin Gimel, Shin Dalit, Shin Hay, the years one, two, three, four, and five of the liberation of the land of Israel. And then we lost the war, the temple was destroyed, and that was the end of that. Um, we continued to give the half shekel up until the year 82, when Hadrian stopped it altogether, and that was the end of the half shekel for the next close to 2,000 years. Um, in 1998, we restored the custom of giving the holy half shekel for the first time in 1,927 years. And we began minting coins in 1998, dating the first year's coin, Shin Nun, the year 50. Because 1998 was the 50th year of Jewish sovereignty over the Holy Land, and that's the way Israelites date our coins. And every year since 1998, for the last 24 years, we have been minting a pure silver holy half shekel featuring on the obverse of the coin every year a different front and a different back featuring a vessel that somebody has already restored to physical reality for the third temple era. Not a wannabe or a wish list, but something that 
some group, the Temple Institute, Begity Free, Harari Harps, anybody who has restored a vessel for the Third Temple era, a usable photographical, photographic, uh, photographical, photographable vessel, something that we could photograph and point to, right? Um, we've featured on the obverse of the coins. So these coins can be used not only to fulfill the commandment, but also to reintroduce all the various vessels that are being restored by all the different temple organizations in preparation for the third temple era. That standing on one foot in a nutshell is is what 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 we've done. Uh, I can go on. I can go on a little further. In the temple, there were thirteen chests for the collection of funds. Two of those chests were specifically for shekels. One chest was called new shekels, and one chest was called old shekels. The chest for new shekels was for the coins that you were donating this year on Purim. Purim is the day that you give the half shekel. That's why today we give on Purim a half ruble, a half dollar, a half mark, a half franc, zecher lemachetzit shekel, in remembrance of the holy half shekel. Now we give a real half shekel, a real holy half shekel, to the base of Mikdash, to the holy temple. Those go into the chest for new shekels. There's a second chest called old shekels. Old shekels were for makeup years, for years in the past that you had not had the ability to fulfill the commandment, you can now buy back the years that you missed in the past by depositing coins into the chest for old shekels. In addition to that, we set up a program called Machatzi Shekel Chayal, a holy half shekel for a soldier. The half shekel is a soldier's commandment, right? Of all the commandments in the Torah, they all begin to be fulfilled as responsible adults at, at Bar Mitzvah, age 13 for the boys, Bat mitzvah age 12 for the girls, except for the holy half shekel. The holy half shekel we begin to give only at the age of 20. Why the age of 20? Because the age of 20 was the age of induction into the army during the time of the Bible. So we set up a program so that you, everybody out there, can sponsor a soldier in the Israel Defense Forces where you buy a holy half shekel and we give it to, for free to a soldier so they can use it to fulfill the commandment. And that you can fulfill uh, by way of our website, shekelidf.org. That'll also appear on the bottom of your screen. I don't even know if you need the www's, but shekelidf.org. And you can go and you can buy, you can sponsor one soldier or five soldiers, or as a community, you can sponsor an entire army base. You buy the coins, we hand them to the soldiers for free. So they can use those coins to fulfill the commandment of giving the holy half shekel, which is a soldier's commandment. There you go. So now Hanukkah, now, yes, well Hanukkah is all about the rededication of the temple, of course, that happened in the, uh, the Maccabean era, and now with the third temple coming, uh, do you see a, uh, a new Hanukkah, as it were, coming about? I mean, how do you see this playing out? What's, what's going on in Israel? Is there a third temple coming, or is I, this? I just, I, just, I just spent an hour talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed you did. Indeed you did. Yeah. So this is a yeah. real thing we're this planning for. This, this is, is not Judaism 3.0. Yeah. 
Yeah. Judaism 3.0. It's Hanukkah. It's one big Hanukkah celebration. We're restoring. We're rededicating. Like even like when when we restored the the, the wedding litter, the Apirion, the 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 biblical weddings, right? We went to the Bible Lands Museum and we did and we did it on Hanukkah of 1992, we rededicated the, 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 the ancient marriage ceremony on Hanukkah at the Bible Lands Museum in Jerusalem. Hanukkah, Judaism 3.0, that's it. Beautiful, so this is not as some would speculate that this is uh, the third temple is a, is a figurative thing, it's not meant to be physical. We're talking about a real temple in Jerusalem, are we not? <laughs> I had somebody that paid me to come to a Catholic conference, right, and 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 stand behind the table and just shake people's hands and go, "Hi, I live in Jerusalem." They don't believe Jerusalem even exists. Like it's in the in the stratosphere. It's in the you know, like yeah, of course it's real. What do you think? <laughs> we what have we been like fighting and dying for here? You know, to to hold on with you know every inch of our our lives to hold on to our, our holy land here. You know, this is this is real. This is real, real. You know, it's not the pie in the sky make believe. You know, I mean, that's the way the story goes. That's the way the story goes. So what, what do you hope or what do you see, like in the last couple of years, has there been some progress? I mean, here in the States, we don't see much about that there. You're right there seeing it as it happens. How close are we? I mean, is this, is this making progress? Well, let's put it this way. 80 years ago, they were feeding my people into ovens in Europe. And 80 years later, we carry our brides through the streets of Jerusalem, crowned with the Jerusalem of Gold bridal crown on a royal wedding litter to the accompaniments of chauffeur blowers and harpists. How close are we? <laughs> mm. We're given a holy half shekel. How close are we? We have our blue back in our fringes. How close are we? We're not hiding our tzitzit under, under Gentile garments out of fear of death from fulfilling the commandments. We're wearing them as a beautiful outer garment. How close are we? Man, I mean, I, I serve as a Levite on duty, right? I'm not a prophet, but, uh, you know, like I'm in the thick of it. You know, how close are we? We're here, we're doing it. It's, like, it's happening right now, you know? Beautiful. This is it. This generation's watching it happen. Wonderful. You know, or, or making it happen, you know? I love it. Thank you, Ruben. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. And again, there's the information on your bottom of your screen if you want to uh, support what Ruben is doing. I think you have a lot of great projects going on, especially the thing about the holy half shekel to the uh, the IDF. I love that one. I love the, the biblical garments you're making. Ruben, thank you so much for what you are doing. Uh, I know that you've been having some uh, health struggles in the, in the last uh, little bit here, last couple of years. So folks, I would just encourage you uh, to help out uh, Ruben. Uh, keep him going. Keep what he's doing. He's doing a wonderful thing. Thing. Thank you for joining us again, Aruven, for uh, Hanukkah 2021, and we pray that you are blessed in Jerusalem. Shalom. Mm -hmm.